Hello there and welcome to the Broadcast Preview Podcast. Lots of MLS nonsense and chatter coming your way over the course of the next 45 minutes or so. Callum Williams alongside Kendra D. St. Aubin and Jamie Watson. First of all, let's talk about Minnesota United, shall we? The end of the regular season is here. 2019 was a very good season for Minnesota United, who will now look forward to the postseason. The last game of the season, Kindra, came at Seattle Sounders, a place that's never easy to go. Minnesota United losing by a goal to nil. Give us your overall thoughts on that game. Um, I thought, well, first of all, it was a, a, my first initial thought was about just the beautiful day it was and the tribute the, the crowd gave to Ozzy Alonso. I think, um, you know, goosebumps listening to the ovation and the reaction that they gave him when he stepped on the field for warm-ups, when they showed the tribute before the game started, I thought that was well done by that organization. And I think we expected nothing less, but at the same time, you just never know. But what he had meant to that club for 10 years, that was kind of my initial reaction, um, just based on that and second of all my next reaction would be Ozzy played against his former club exactly like we expected Ozzy to play against his former club with crunching tackles you know didn't matter who he was going up against and who he was challenging and trying to will his team Minnesota United to a win on a day where I think Seattle was the better team Uh, Minnesota missed a couple decent chances you know Ethan Finley in the first half with a post and then had a, a little bit more energy in the second half but still just wasn't enough from an attacking perspective in my opinion to get the job done. And if you were going to beat Seattle at home in a game, even if it was middle of the season or it was a a game that mattered, like it did the decision day, this might've been the year to do it because I think that they're not the team that we are used to seeing Homer away. And, um, the fact that they had scored what now they've scored, I think six goals in their last six games and four of them came against the Red Bulls in one game. So I don't think from an attacking perspective, they're the team that we're used to seeing, even with Jordan Morris and Christian Roldan and, you know, all, and and all the players up top that you expect to see, like Rui Diaz. Um, but, you know, I think the way the game went, it was a fair result. The way the game went, the way the game was played, Seattle was the better team on the day. It's unfortunate that Minnesota didn't get the point on the road. But I think you and I even said right after the match, like once the whistle blew, it was such a weird feeling because – you knew you were going to be hosting a game, but you lost in Seattle. And I don't know if any of us, at least I didn't ever think that was really going to be a possibility that if we didn't go on the road, at least get a point, we knew it was mathematically possible, but I didn't think LA would lose on the road to Houston. So even though LA hasn't been great. So it was like this weird feeling where you were excited to be having a home postseason game, but yet you just lost in Seattle. So, um, you know, a bow on the end of the season, Seattle was the better team that day turn the page and get ready for, you know, for at home against Zlatan in, in the LA Galaxy. And we will have a preview podcast coming away next week to talk about the first ever playoff game for Minnesota United at Allianz Field, as Kindred D. St. Aubin mentions, hosting Zlatan Ibrahimovic and the LA Galaxy. So stay tuned uh, to MNUFC.com for that. Jay, what about you, your overriding thoughts of the Sounders results? Um, yeah, the Aussie thing was great um, before, as Kendra mentioned. That was uh, that was really good to see. I thought they did did it justice um, for him, and and that was that was awesome. I think that that definitely is worth being noted to start. But um, much like him and us, now once the pregame whistle went, uh, the pleasantries were done there. Uh, as far as the game goes, Minnesota United um, defended up, I think, really, really well defended the box um, were subject to a lot of crosses from wide areas. Um, Seattle did a great job of 
going from side to side quickly and penetrating from the outside backs this is why we talked about it in the, in the pregame show um, was because they were always going to be important. I thought Leardom did a great job of creating an overload. Uh, Chase Gasper did a good job yet. He was stuck with Joven Jones and Leardom, both very fast, very athletic, quick, dynamic players with also size to go with it. Um, you know, so there was a lot of crosses coming in the other side. Uh, Brad Smith, um, did a good job overlapping as well. Getting involved. I thought Boxel and Opar did everything that you could have wanted to, um, to defensively do well. Ultimately the goal was scored on a cross. And I think it was kind of indicative of, you know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And finally it was the one that got in off the head of Roman Torres, I believe in like the 29th minute or so. So through the first half hour it was really one-way traffic apart from some odds and end chances the other way from distance half chances the only real clear-cut one for minnesota united on the day was ethan finley and you're kind of scrounging for other ones aren't you um so uh the numbers here that i was looking at from the last 10 games you know i think there is a legitimate question about minnesota united not getting enough opportunities going forward and particular they haven't i think matt doyle pointed out in the last 10 games they scored 10 goals that is a question, right, for Minnesota United now. It's not for lack of creating opportunities in the most part, apart from the Seattle game. There are chances in the LAFC game. There was chances, obviously, before that in Sporting Kansas City where they won 2-1. Um, this game was one where there was not really any scoring and there weren't really any chances. So that, for me, was the, the big outstanding factor. Of course, if Ethan Finley curls that in, you know, then it's a completely different game. Um, but from the 10 goals, the thing that is giving me... A sense of belief that it's okay that as it gets to the end of the season, tighter games, better competition, less room for error, less margin for error, less mistakes being made. In those 10 games, Minnesota United have conceded, I believe, six goals. So everybody seems to be condensing, run through the list of results, 1-0 before, 1-1-2-1-0-0-3-1-2-0. You start going through, you're starting to realize that these games are getting tighter and tighter and the room for error is smaller. So when you go forward, there's more importance on scoring goals and getting those opportunities, making the most of it. Um, Seattle were the better team on the day. Minnesota United need to figure out a way now at Allianz Field to use that home field advantage against LA Galaxy to create more pressure, to get more opportunities against an LA Galaxy team that does concede and sometimes in some unconceivable ways, like the 93rd minute against Vancouver Whitecaps at home when they're tied 3-3. Um, I'll ask you, Jay, about Ethan Finlay's chance in a moment. But first, Kendra, whilst we're on the subject of goals, um, what about the Seattle Sounders' single solitary goal? Um, lovely ball in from Jones, but how in that situation is Roman Torres completely unmarked at the back post? How did that happen? You know, I think it's been a weak spot for Minnesota United even in 2019, as they've gotten better defensively in the run of play, I think that there's a mentality about defending set pieces in the box, whether it's a corner kick or it's a second ball in. And all of a sudden, Roma Mettenere looks around and he's got two people on him. Now, granted, it's too late. You know, he's he's got one guy in front of him and he's got Roman Torres in the back, on the back post. So, you know, I don't know if they just thought once it got cleared out the other side, they shut off for a moment in time. And that's, and look, Minnesota United isn't the first team to do it. They won't be the last team to do it. Defending set pieces is you know, is a challenge, and that's why you hear people talk all the time, set pieces, set pieces, set pieces. And that means offensively scoring on your chances when you have a, a million corner kicks like Seattle did. I Maybe they maybe they should count their blessings in the fact that they only scored on one. But defending them as well, it's, it's a challenge. And to me, set pieces and defending in the box is very much a mentality about a 1v1 battle, 
not turning off for a moment and getting to the ball first and getting to the second ball, getting to the second chance if it's bouncing around in the box. And it's a moment of turning off. It goes out the other way. It was a completely mishit corner kick out the backside. I don't think they're trying to ping it to the other side and hit Jones on that ball. And just turning off for a moment, a lack of awareness, a lack of paying attention to who's available and who needs to be marked. I don't like zonal marking. I don't think that's what the that's what they were doing, but you just have to know that this is your guy and you need to be aware. And Roman Torres is one of the biggest bodies on the pitch. He also hasn't scored a goal all year mm. and, you know, had been suspended for 10 games. So I don't think you were thinking he was a threat, but nonetheless, a body like that in the box, on the back post, somebody's got to be aware of where he's at. And it's a moment of switching off in my mind. It's a moment of just mentally switching off and, and not being aware of, of who's around you and picking up that guy. So uh, what I saw too on that was so – We've seen we've, we've got the luxury of seeing set pieces more than we could ever possibly want day before trainings and stuff like that. And there's not so much zonal; it's marked. It's man on man with a guy just kind of in the the front space in the near near post. It kind of clears anything that comes short because um, you do have the extra guy when they leave two for one at the back. And um, with that, it just seemed as though the one thing that I think Icopar has been really really good at this year is set pieces and marking. I mean, I actually. I'll take the other chance. I think we've been actually really good defending set pieces. This one is a case in which this is why you always see defenders checking their shoulders to find where their mark is because the play isn't dead. Joven Jones does a good job of kind of, um, kind of corralling it at the back post, but that's his job is to keep everything that goes up and over. Um, so he does just that. Ike actually gets caught looking at Joven, and as he realizes the ball's going to get served in because he's got enough space to serve it in, he goes to look, and he actually got picked on the play a little bit, not on purpose, but just the mess of bodies in there. So by the time he could fight through the pick that was set, his man, Torres, at the back was wide open to be able to head it in. It's a great ball with pace, curling towards goal, so Torres has every bit of the angle going favorably for him, but... I actually, I mean, I think we've been really good on those set pieces defensively. This is just a one in which the guy you'd want, if you're going to pick out one person to mark anybody in the league, you're going to put Ike Par on him. You'll see him do it against Zlatan in 10 days' time. You know, I think that that it will be a case in which uh, he will be just fine in any situation. This is one that was a bit unfortunate, and it was a perfect storm of a great ball in. Torres just kind of bouncing around and finding himself in that spot. He didn't do anything sort of dynamic other than just kind of like everybody. Eyes were at it. As soon as the ball gets left, he starts reading the trajectory of it, and it ends up falling right to him all by himself. To her, quite honestly, I think I could have scored. <laughs> and I know no one's ever talked to my prowess of scoring in the box on headers. Not sure you would have reached it, would you? Well, let's be honest. I scored two <laughs> goals in MLS. One of them was on a header. Fun fact. Um, yeah, that would have uh, – it was just a case in which Ike – Unfortunately, got lost in a mess of bodies. So it, it happens. It's the difference in this game. And then it's the difference in this game, what you were talking about a moment ago with Ethan Finley's goal. Um, they got a chance 10 minutes later, 11 minutes later, to go and equalize. Yeah. Through a little bit of pressure. Speaking of headers, another bad back pass by Brad Smith. I say another. I don't know if he had any others on the, ga on the game, but another header in which really dictated the way the game was going to go. And Morgan Lubin, our producer, can attest to this. When he first felt the first bit of contact from Brad Smith on the bad pack pass, I actually yelled, go down. Because that's an automatic red card in the 40th minute on the road, even though you're down 1-0. And we had a little bit of a debate off air, didn't we, while you guys were giving the commentary, giving the replay and everything. It's quite funny. I, I said, he go down. Morgan saying, you got to go for the goal um, in this situation, which 
either answer, you're right. You go for the goal first and foremost. But if you're if you're honest, if you're honest about the game, you'll fight through it. You'll carry on. You'll take your chance. The game sometimes doesn't reward honesty, though. That's the problem nowadays. Correct. Because Correct. if there's any sort of contact felt from Ethan Finley there, after Brad Smith gives a bad back pass, even the slightest tug and and you just the wind blows too stiffly and your hands on somebody and you go down. It's a straight red dog. So denial of an obvious goal scoring opportunity. He's off and you're playing up a man for the next 60 minutes. So I'll pose this question to you. Cause I got Morgan's answer. I said, my answer, would you rather seen Ethan Finley go down? Would you rather see him go, go on for the effort and try to score? Um, and I'm not going to question your, your ethical honesty. If you say I would hundred percent go for the goal and score, because I do not trust referees. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, That's, yeah. but I don't know. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like whether it would be the right call or not, if how much mm -hmm. contact he had, like I wouldn't want to put that in the officials hands. I'd rather put it in Ethan's hands and, and, and hope that he's going to finish. Sure. It. And, and of I mean? course, right. You go score a goal, you make it one, yes, one. It's yes. a good point. Even but, with VAR now, but, like I wouldn't, you know, trust that the official would review it and make that decision. But if I could, if I, Cal, I want to get your answer and I'll, I'll pose another question to you. Go ahead. But, but, but it's, it's easy to, to talk about now, isn't it? Because we know the outcome. Yes. Right. Cause and, we know he missed it. And if, you know, but we've seen Ethan Finlay before being uh, through on goal. Just did against uh, Salt Lake. Uh, but but then also you, the counter argument to that is the Montreal miss. Yes. When he was one on one, and credit he wins down. the penalty. Yeah. But so my thing with with this is that I, I always think the player should go for the goal. But I can absolutely see your point as well, because it's so uh, the reason why I'll, I'll semi agree with you as well, Jay, is because. I think Ethan Finlay, when, and it's not his fault, it's just where the ball is, he's very, very square on with the goalkeeper. Yes. He's not at an angle. Yes. And, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong here, but when he was approaching it, instantly I thought, goal, it's got to be a goal. But he was approaching it so straight on, he didn't have any sort of angle to work with. And credit to, to Fry as well, he does well to close down the angle. But there's still enough there for me, for Ethan Finlay, to open up his hips a little bit. It was a little bit too square, in my opinion. Um, and, and, and you, you simply have to put those chances away. And Jay, you've been in situations where you've been one-on-one -on -one and, and it just looked, in, in my opinion, that, that it was all just a little bit too closed up, all a little bit too square. And, and as I said, originally, when he got away from Smith, I thought, goal, it's got to be. But on approach, I wasn't confident at all. No, he was, he was trying to create the angle on the, the less favorable of the two feet, his left foot, to try to curl it around and... You're, you can tell, he, so now he's got Brad Smith on that side in which he can't take it to his right foot because Brad Smith is on his right shoulder. So now he's got to go with his left foot, but he's got to run around it where Smith is still there fighting now even a little bit of pressure. You don't quite know where the defender is. To run around it, to create the angle, to be able to get the whip on it, to kind of curl it around, you're right. It, it's very, very difficult. And that's why, that's why I said the question, you know, would we have been better off going down and getting you know sent off because it is a difficult chance. Now it's, it's easy to say that if he goes and scores, you're like, Hey, great job of fighting through it. But if he feels any sort of contact off the back, back pass and he goes down instead of having to fight off the pressure, not knowing where the pressure is run around it, curl it around him on the left foot ends up missing it. The, the question I was going to say a minute ago was if I would say to you with 50 minutes to play plus stoppage time, you could take one, one, or you could take up a man. With and it, 15. 50. Oh, 50. Because this was Sorry. at the 40th minute. So let's say hypothetically, in a game on the road against a, against a visiting team, or you're the visiting team against a home team, would you take 1-1 one, one at the 40th minute, or would you take down 1-0 up a man? I'd take 1-1. One, one. 
away at the Sounders. Yes. Add that with 50 minutes to go. 50 five minutes, zero to go, five minutes to go. Knowing that all you need is a tie on the day to get home field advantage throughout, I mean, as a second seed until you have to get to the finals. With, with it being away at the Sounders, obviously taking a tie is, is fabulous, mm -hmm. but um, knowing with knowing this team, knowing the way they like to play, I'd actually take the red card. That's what I'd I would actually take. take the red card because I seriously think that you can open up the Sounders a lot more than um, with it being down to 10 men. Um, we'll tell, you yeah. may open them up, but you still got to finish. Well, tell us oh, why correct, this is okay. So we, we, we both, we both <laughs> Which say, has been an issue. For, we both say in that setting, about the lack of scoring. Right. we would take a man up for 50 minutes, down 1-0 on the road. In that day in which a tie is good enough, you, why wouldn't you? Exactly for that reason, because I don't think Minnesota United has been able to finish their opportunities, and Seattle Sounders are going to be defensively even more compact than they were in an equal 11 v 11 on the road where you could have oh, you could open it up they had very few opportunities, and the one or two that they did have, they didn't finish. Do you think they would have more if they're up a man? No, because I think Seattle would have changed their shape completely. You know, I think that they would have been more compact defensively, and I don't know that. I mean, yeah, of course, by virtue of the fact that you are up a man, you may have a chance or two more, but are they good chances? Mm. You know, what What do the chances look like? But this is all hypothetical. And just hypothetical. Another yeah. note, a quick note on this, that peace fact, I, I think Minnesota has been heads and, you know, hands down better than before. But of the teams going into that game against Seattle that had made the postseason, they're second to last in set pieces allowed, second to worst in set pieces allowed of the teams that have made the postseason going into that game. And I think defending set pieces against, especially in the playoffs, is going to become such a crucial point that I think that that's just one of those things. And that was a freak thing where Ike gets picked or whatever. And, and he is so good at organizing the box and defensively and his head's on a swivel. And I think him and Boxy have been fantastic. I just think that that's one of those moments that, you know, I, I a game could very well come down to a set piece or a corner kick in, in the playoffs. And now when it's you're, you're losing, you're done. Mm. Hopefully we see how much they work on it. So it's not for a lack of trying. It's not for lack of Mark Watson, not trying to organize defensively mm. or even offensively, but um, we'll see if it comes into play, especially against some of the bodies that LA Galaxy have yeah. in the box. Let's move on then. Um, a lot has happened since we all saw each other in Seattle. Um, I think the main headline, um, which is a subject I know that's close to, to your heart, Jay, so we'll go to you on this first. Uh, James O'Connor has been let go by Orlando City, who are now searching for their fourth manager approaching their sixth season in Major League Soccer. Um, will they ever learn? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, you hope so, <laughs> but what has history told you? What's the different definition of insanity, right? Repeating the same thing and hoping for a different outcome. And it's, it's one of these situations in which you had a coach that came in, he's got a year and a half, just like Adrian Heath did, which is, I believe, even less than what, or Jason Christ had similar time frames. So you've now had three coaches there and interim coach along the way. Right. So you're going through and you're going, right. So at what point James came in at the middle of 2017, he had contracts that were middle of 2018, excuse me. He had contracts that were um, guys like Will Johnson, who's on a big chunk of salary that were guaranteed based on playing time that was a mistake that was made and, and whatnot and all of those little factors that go in. So he's, he's inheriting a lot of guaranteed contracts that take up a big chunk of his salary for the 2019 season. And granted, they had a very, very poor last quarter of the season, which season falls fall to 11th. Um, I just think, what, what do you expect the, the new 
the new coach to come in and do differently. Now he's going to have a lot more of an advantageous situation, but at some point, right, wrong, or indifferent, just pick somebody and stick with it and actually give him the opportunity to get a couple of windows to make a real difference. It's just at, at some point I, I can, by the way, if you're an Orlando city supporter, you have every right to be upset and continually be upset about it. Whether it's James, whether it's Adrian, whether it's Jason, whether it's whoever else, whomever else is going to come in, give them time, give them at least the opportunity to be able to, to get an MLS roster, which you can't just throw $20 million at and say, everything's fixed. It doesn't work that way. And if you, the sooner you can understand that and give a coach, whoever it may be time to figure it out, then you might actually see some real differences, but guess what? A new coach is going to come in and there's going to be a whole new different learning curve. And the guys that maybe are a part of your core group now may not be what that coach likes exactly. Or on paper, they may say, I kind of like the guy, but then what if there's a personality clash? What if there's a stylistic tactical clash? What if there's just a whole myriad of maybes Cal to take your, your terminology there. I just, at some point, just make a decision and stick with it because you're only just going to keep repeating this vicious cycle for Orlando city. It's just it's frustrating to watch from a distance. Certainly. Yeah. It's uh, bizarre to say the least. Um, uh, that's my take. Kendra, you got a, you got a hot take on it. Cause I, I think that's... it's the same as, I mean, we said going into the last game that well, when we talked about the possibility of Orlando city and James O'Connor and saying like, how do you not give this guy more time? It's, yeah. It wasn't your guys. I mean, we had this whole discussion. Now, I don't know if any of us thought, even with the craziness of the Orlando city ownership group, and their inconsistencies and in what we've seen over the past, how many other coaches you just listed, we thought there's no chance. There's no chance you can't bring him back and give yeah. him some more time to make it his team and his roster and his style and whatever else. And there it was, you know? So, I mean, it's, I, I think it's hard to make any sense of anything Orlando city is doing right now. And there's some teams and there's some clubs, there's some organizations, any sport that you're like, until the owner is not there, they may not find success. And guess what? The owner's not firing himself, you know, and that I've, oh my gosh, covering the Suns with their ownership. Like I couldn't tell you how many times we were like, until they change owners, like it's going to be the same thing. It's going to be this vicious cycle. And the owner's not going to fire themselves. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> I'll ask you this is, you know, Kendra, good point, by the way, that's a, that's a very good analogy to it. Um, Cal is the next hire for Orlando city, maybe their most important. Yes, because people aren't going to keep. One? <laughs> yeah, there, there, there you go. Said that. Well, well taken. People... Set that up. Slammed it home. Yeah. <laughs> people aren't going to keep coming back in numbers to the stadium. Mm. They're already struggling with, right. with numbers. You watch Orlando City now. You can. You, I didn't know for a while there that at the stadium you could see Orlando written in the seats. Yeah. Because the seats were filled. Yeah. Yeah. I figured that out halfway through the year watching games. So is it, I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to, to no, interject. No, no. Go on, finish your thought. Well, look, so, so for me, the, the fans are going to slowly continue to disappear. But also as well, surely from a playing perspective, you can't fancy going there if you're a player and you've got anything about you now and you're established in MLS. You surely must think to yourself, if you have the choice, there's absolutely no way you want to be a part of this because that they are... Um, they are... Uh, Falling down a landslide, I, I don't think anybody ever thought they would when they first came into MLS. They were supposed to be one of the the new um, prodigies and, and, and one of the, the new teams that, that other people would look up to because yeah, of like what the they blueprint. did in USL. Yeah. Exactly. Um, 
So it, it's surprising. It, it's really bizarre to see what's happened at Orlando City. Um, and as I said, if I was a player, I just wouldn't have any interest in it whatsoever. So um, again, now look, the, the way that they potentially can save themselves is by hiring, um, you know, a, a, a world-renowned coach um, who, uh, you know, look, I mean, if, if they're foreign, then sometimes it takes a while to adapt. Um, ultimately, we're all in agreement here. They should have stuck with James O'Connor and let him build his legacy there. But uh, look, it's not happened. And um, I'm intrigued to see what uh, what O'Connor does next, actually. I, I think there's a job somewhere else for him, no doubt. Um, Certainly, yeah. One, one individual that is remaining in Major League Soccer, Kendra, I know this is a club uh, close to you, um, at San Jose Earthquakes, Matias Almeida. There were rumours all over the place over the course of the last week or two that he was off uh, to Liga MX and to Monterrey. That doesn't seem to be the case now. I think that would have been really disappointing um, because of the way he got the team behind him and really to believe what he was about and the the camaraderie that was created there. I think it would have been disappointing if he had just up and left and taken an opportunity that was more money because, or, or whatever the situation was, I don't even know, but I did see all those, those rumors with Monterey. And I, I, I said to my husband, Bobby, I'm like, Oh man, that would be a total bummer because you do really have this group that has gotten behind. They were, they were drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, they were taking what he was selling. And I think that is his personality. I think that's why he has had some success other places that he gets the group together, even if they don't all speak Spanish. And so I would have been disappointed from that perspective. But at the same time, I was so focused on the fact that they what lost six straight, seven straight. What was it to end the season? I mean, it was craziness. It was absurd. And I just, I, I felt for the group because it was, it was like, did, did teams figure out the San Jose earthquakes or how do you, how do you not write the ship? And, you know, you're starting to get red cards everywhere and then you've got, you know, not doing it at home and, and their stadium was still half empty even when they were having a good year. So, um, I was glad that Matias Almeida is staying, um, as far as we know, and as far as what it, all signals. But I was so focused on just the disappointment to the end of that season for them because I, I was excited, you know, speaking to Tommy quite a bit about what they had going on there, and he felt good about what that team was doing and, and the way they were doing things and the way they had come together and played as a team. And some of the players there did have some of their best years, in MLS anyways. And... Um, I'm glad to see him still in the league. I think that that passion, that energy, that confidence, that swagger, that flow that Matias Almeida has going on with his hair, it's good to stay uh, in the league. And I think it, I think he's good for the league, but I was happy to see him stay. I do wonder if uh, Chris Wondolowski stays around as well. Yeah. According to Almeida, he's been offered a one-year deal. Yeah. Um, but he'd fit in just about anywhere, wouldn't he, in MLS? Yeah. But he also goals. said he loves everything. I mean, he is Mr. San Jose sure, now. Sure. You know, I mean, his family is, you know, he said he'll be there whether he's in the office or in a, wherever he would be. So if they, I don't know what the one year deal is. Did it report what the money is? Is no, it, is it the club option? Is it the same? What was he getting making? 800000 or something? Or I don't know what it was before, but I don't know why he would go somewhere else at this point in his career. Um, possibly just for a new challenge and yeah. a new change of scenery, maybe. But, um, you know, anyway, that's another debate for another day. He isn't retiring, but there are several, an array of MLS legends that are retiring this year. So I just want to pick out a few names here. And go down, you, go, don't go down the list, though, of the ones that you, you we consider legends that are retiring. Can you, do you well, have yeah, the list? Yeah, so, so I was oh, going to okay. say, so we'll, we'll go down the list, but the, the ones that I mentioned here, mm -hmm. um, I would love... You guys have been in, in U.S. soccer for a while. I would love to have uh, your 
finest memories from these individuals, if you can. So first of all, Bastian Schweinsteiger, obviously mm -hmm. retiring. Uh, Demarcus Beasley, Tim Howard, and uh, Michael Parkhurst and Chad Marshall are the names that I have listed here. Uh, Kendra, I'll, I'll start with you. You know, out of that um, array of names, is there a memory that sticks out for you from one of those players? Well, I think the the one that maybe made the most impression on me would be Demarcus Beasley. Um, this is a guy that you see him and. Well, I mean, Chad Marshall, very much the same, doesn't look insanely athletic, but DeMarcus Beasley could do anything any coach at any level asked him at any moment. He played just about every position on the field. And what I loved about him is he always had a smile on his face. Literally never turned down nearly any interview. U.S. soccer, played four World Cups, you know, Houston Dynamo, you know, speaks two languages. I just love everything that he stood for. I don't know if there's one specific memory of him playing that stands out for me, but me, for me, so much of it is about a person's integrity and their personality and the energy that they bring to every team that they're on. And I always love that about DeMarcus Beasley. Every time I watch him play, he's a competitor. He's fiery. He'll do whatever the coach asks him at any time in any position to get the job done. And he does it really well. And um, literally always has a smile on his face. And I think seeing him carried off after that last match and seeing him kind of be emotional, knowing that this was it, this with the Houston Dynamo, this was the final hurrah, finally kind of probably hit him. And every time we played him with Minnesota United, he got, you know, he would take tackles. He's getting hurt, he, but he bounces back up. He's making the run, 120 end line to end line. You know, he's the oldest guy on the pitch. And um, there's just something about that work rate and that work ethic and and being able to do it at that level for so long. So DeMarcus Beasley, for me, probably stands out the most. Jim? I mean, DeMarcus is a legend. He obviously is on the Mount Rushmore with U.S. soccer, only player of four World Cups, yeah, on and on and on. But he literally turned down every interview request we ever gave him. Oh, so we, apart, every, we I agree with everything you said except for the We only requested him twice. <laughs> every pregame, but he just had a routine, so we never yeah. had a chance to interview <laughs> it's him. It's only twice. Would have loved to, but... Uh, um, you know, going down those lists, it, it's funny because I have, I have some memories on the field, both off the field as well. Like Chad Marshall, I remember meeting him um, before one of the, uh, I believe it was MLS Cup in, I want to say, 09, maybe uh, one of the commissioner's parties that they had. And uh, I took a picture with him and somehow bad strategic planning on my part. I stood next <laughs> to him in the picture. I have that picture. I don't even get up to his shoulders. Wow. <laughs> Chad Marshall, just a large human being. Um, just one of the really good guys on and off the field. There's a reason you never heard anybody say anything bad about Chad Marshall's because if, if you had something to say about Chad Marshall is more of a reflection probably on you than on uh, anyone else. I, I would say, look, out of Tim Howard, I think the game that uh, he had against Belgium stands out for me. Um, although we lost... Call back to Chris Wondolowski for a moment ago. Chance to score late on. Um, I remember Chris more for the goal scoring than the miss, but he had what sixteen saves in that game, something like that. I mean, he, he was he was remarkable. I remember him from the Metro Stars, all in, uh, Manchester United, where he was uh, saving PKs in the Community Shield, I believe, to win him a trophy when he first got there to Manchester United. Um, Fashion Schweinsteiger, apart from all the trophies he lifted in World Cups that he won, uh, my favorite memory of him is him taking the picture in the airport with the Chicago Fire <laughs> when he first signed there. And some fan uh, walked up and said, excuse me, sir, will you take a picture of me with some of the Chicago Fire players? And mm. I think it was Eric Garrick took the picture of Bastian Schweinsteiger taking the picture. Um, oh, look, I, I think that the, the list, uh, the other ones on the list you had were that we haven't hit yet. 
Oh, Michael Parkhurst. Michael Parkhurst. I mean, Ramondo's in there too. Ramondo is well, yeah. Yes. Michael Parkhurst is um, my favorite memory. He's, I think he maybe scored one or two goals his entire tenure in Major League Soccer. But one of them was from midfield yeah. with um, was with against Toronto with the Revolution. Um, great guy. And then Nick Ramondo, just all the PK saves over the years. Um, he was a teammate of mine in Salt Lake, and you know, nice guy uh, in the locker room. And I mean, I think every one of those guys very good people. Um, so I hope they are feeling a lot of the, the love because I know this feeling of retirement and of basically the end of the only thing you ever want to do, wanted to do in your life was be a pro soccer player for DeMarcus. He did it for 20 years. You know, a lot of these guys, 10, 15 years, and it's never long enough and it goes by so quickly. So I hope they get a chance to see, hear, feel all this love that's going their way because um, it really is a shift in generations, and that was a generation of MLS and U.S. national team stars that we are now shifting to a new generation of, but a lot of good memories with their um, Cal, two or three from that list that stand out for you. I remember Tim Howard coming to England when he signed for Manchester United, and I remember everybody thinking, who on earth is this American? Who, who is this that... You know, he's not just signing for any club, he's signing for Manchester United. Who is this guy? And I did remember watching him in his early days at United and being straight away noticing that his spring was so strong. Like, his thighs were unbelievable. They were so, That's so... why he wears his, those super tight shorts and tucks in his shirt now. Yeah. He's just trying his to thighs are your most memorable memory of him, yes, huh? Yes, yes. Tim Howard's thighs, yes. <laughs> um, for me personally, though, I, I think... Um, Bit of a foggy memory here, but I, but I do remember, I think it was his first Manchester United goal. I was commentating on Manchester United, I think it was away, uh, it was somewhere like West Brom or Watford or, or Palace or someone like that. And um, uh, Ibrahimovic scored um, to open up. Uh, Troy Deeney then scored from the penalty late on. And then in the, like, the 93rd minute, Bastian Schweinsteiger um, was able to, to score um, the, the late goal. So it, it was a Watford if, if Deeney scored. Um, and I just remember seeing Schweinsteiger just run in. The ball was sort of loose in the box and Schweinsteiger just ran in and just hit it. Oh, and it just hit the net. And, and the, so the corner um, of the travelling away fans went went berserk, obviously. And um, I'm not, I can't remember off the top of my, of my head if that was his first Manchester United goal or not. But I just remember because United were certainly in the top four race at that stage. And I just remember seeing this image of... Um, of uh, uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic sort of like peeling away, Bastian Schweinsteiger running over to him, jumping up, punching the air and landing in the arms of Zlatan Ibrahimovic and oh, just awesome. thinking, you know, what a great moment for, for Bastian Schweinsteiger that was, you know. So that, that's probably my, um, the, the one that I can think of right now for sure. But uh, yeah, H Howard for me was, was amazing when he came over and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's great to see that he's had such uh, an illustrious career. So um, sad that we're going to say goodbye to some of these, some of these young players, uh, some of these old players rather. You're right. And if you're listening, I'm, I'm sure there's different memories that pop up with different players. Maybe it's uh, choosing from one of a dozen. Maybe it's one of, you know, a hundred dozen. Maybe it's one of a few, but each one of these players had a certainly had an impact on the game one way or another. And, um, you know, it, it's cool to always kind of reflect on those memories because it's, uh, it's amazing. Right. If I asked you what you had for lunch last week, how you couldn't tell me, but nope. you are remembering with a foggy memory, the exact goal scores, the exact images. It's, it's amazing how these memories can sometimes be some of the fondest ones. Yep. Or if you're a supporter of a different team, sometimes mm -hmm. you, 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 you hate them because they did something remarkable in a game that, you know, negatively affected your team. And, you know, but either way, that's a beautiful thing about football, isn't it? It makes you feel some sort of emotion. 
best sport in the world. No question, in my opinion. Um, whilst we're on the subject of illustrious, it is that time of the year where, as members of the media, we get to vote. Um, Minnesota United this year, after a fabulous campaign where they finished fourth in the Western Conference, have a couple of players up for certain accolades. Vito Manone uh, could very well be named the goalkeeper of the year, Iko Para, defender of the year, and Hassani Dotson up for the rookie of the year. So first of all, Kindred D. St. Orban, let me ask you, Vito Manone, goalkeeper of the year, or is it going elsewhere? Well... I think sometimes it's hard for me to separate defenders and goalkeeping and shutouts and, and the players in front of them. I think Vio Monona has been fantastic. I, 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 I voted for him as goalkeeper of the year, and I don't think that was a homer-biased opinion. I do think that he has saved Minnesota United in times when needed. He's been a an addition that that I think was needed, I think, Bobby Shuttleworth was great, but Vito Minotti brought a different sense of swagger with him, of energy, of confidence, of organizing. And it's hard for me sometimes to separate the guys in front of him. Ike Para, Defender of the Year, quite possibly past Defender of the Year. Michael Boxel, who I think has been fantastic this season. And Ozzy Alonso sitting just in front of him. And even your outside backs. I think the unit as a whole has been so fantastic. But... For me, Vito Minone, I don't have any hesitation in saying that he's deserved of getting my vote for that. Um, whether or not, you know, I'm sure everybody has their own opinion and there's an, a, a, you know, a plethora of others. But I think, you know, the the statistics and the categories and if you look at um, the shutouts on the season for him, that he's a massive part of that and no hesitation in my mind for him to be to get my vote. There's a lot of stiff competition this year, though, yes. Jay, as well, like Bill Hamid, Sean Johnson, mm -hmm. uh, Stephen Fry, Andre Blake are just a few names I have in front of me. Uh, maybe the sentimental vote could go to Nick Romando as well. No, uh, and, and look, I don't think there was anybody that was head and shoulders above the rest. Mm -hmm. I think if you ask 10 different people, you might get 10 different answers. Um, for me, I, I did vote, and I made sure that, like I think any media member should do, I think you should have to... You know, be accountable for your votes. I'm going to put my votes for all of this, all of the postseason accolades and um, uh, best eleven on my Twitter account because I think that's a responsibility that if you get the opportunity to vote, you should be able to defend it in a sense, right, wrong, or indifferent. I did vote for Vito Minone first, and I, I voted uh, Bill Hamid for second for the All-State MLS Goalkeeper of the Year. Uh, Bill Hamid did have 14 shutouts, I believe, this season. Um, I think that's right. I think that's what he ended up having, uh, having overall for the season. Um, something along those lines, something, something absurd. He had quite a few shutouts on the year. Actually, that's not right. He couldn't have had 14 cause they only had 13 wins on the season. Anyways, I think he had, I think he had a, maybe a one or two more shutouts than, um, uh, Vito Minone. I looked that up in just a second, but when I was going through the numbers, I think Vito Minone was more influential as a part of the resurgent with Minnesota United. And I don't think goalkeeper of the year should just be based on if Vito had one more shutout than Bill Hamid. I, I think when the numbers are close to equal, I know Vito was second in the year, um, second overall in MLS and saves. I think Vito was um, more influential to his team. And I think that that was uh, a big reason why I voted for Vito over Bill Hamid. Those are my two. But as you said, um, I think that, Nick Romando could also get it sentimentally because, as you mentioned, um, he also did not ever win goalkeeper of the year over his illustrious Major League Soccer career, a guy that basically holds every single record for the most part. He 
never got that one. So I don't know. It was a, it was a weird one for me, but yeah, I think, I think Bill Hamid was second and you, you could argue and I would listen to an argument the other way around, but I voted veto one, um, bill two. You? Well, see, this is the thing as well. So Romando, actually, it's interesting that we talk about it as being the sentimental vote. No doubt mm -hmm. there are better goalkeepers that have had better seasons this year, but he actually got nine shutouts this season. Which you're which right. Which isn't a bad record at all. And I, I realized I just said something totally stupid. I well, said he couldn't have had 14 shutouts because they only had 13 wins. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I was going to correct you, but <laughs> no, I, just, you know, I was going to let way. you just go with give that me, one. Yeah, give me a, give me a kick under the table. Hey, hey, idiot. Up. You can actually get a shutout and get a tie. <laughs> yes. So he did have 14 shutouts. I was right. I did look at it before. Yeah, I was running through all the numbers. So, yes. I was going to wait until we posted and then just let the Twitter world blast you. Jeez, thank you. <laughs> Friends like you, who needs enemies? It's already out. It's 14 already recorded, shutouts. So. Vito did have 11. Um, so, yes, he did have more shutouts than wins this season. Shockingly enough, do you know that? Um, <laughs> talking of players that have uh, contributed to shutouts, uh, Defender of the Year this year, Ico Parra certainly... Um, I think it's safe to say leads the way in that certain category there, Kendra. Uh, but if he does, he is closely followed by the likes of Eddie Segura and particularly Miles Robinson at Atlanta United. Can I ask you guys, do you think, is it like a thing where, I mean, is it more often than not where it's a center back? No. You know what no. I'm saying? Like when we're talking about it, like, I mean, because we, we sort of like half jokingly one day on the broadcast and it was a Slack channel during a game. Like, are we sure we don't want to include Roma Metanier? in our push for the defender of the year. And, you know, he's included in, in the MLS, but, but I just, and I look, I go para absolutely rightfully. So hands down, no, no questions that he could 100% because of where this team has come from and where it is now. And I go back to the same kind of argument I had, even with Vito Minone is you look at this unit as a whole, but what Ike para has brought to this club and the fact that, his stability in the back, not just on the field, but as a leader, his vocal ability, his organizational, the fact that all he does is win. That's what he did at Kansas City. That's all he knows from his time at Kansas City. And the fact that just that presence, that never say die attitude and just being in the right place at the right time positionally. And I just, you know, there are certain players that maybe don't get enough credit. And I mean, so I have no problem saying Ikebara defender of the year. I mean, we played Eddie Segura. I think he played in both games. We played against him and we played against Miles Robinson, obviously with Atlanta United. Um, and seeing Ikebara day in and day out, I if, if we're going to really pit them up against those two, I would say no problem, in my opinion, giving it to Ikebara for what he's meant for this club and the fact that we do get to see it day in and day out. I do think Miles Robinson has been good, but I think he's got a ways to go before I would maybe give him defender of the year. I think for, for me, Jeremy, I, I agree with Kendra in the fact that it's the overall um, contribution that, that Ike Parra has made, alongside several other players as well, don't get me wrong. But Minnesota United conceded 28 less goals than they did last season, and Ike Parra has been a big reason for that. And Kansas City conceded 27 more goals than they did. <laughs> In 2018, there I think I think it just goes to show. Look, I voted um, Ike one, Miles two. Um, I just, I mean, like for every reason that's been sad. I mean, and I think halfway through the year, Roman would have been in the conversation mm -hmm. for Defender of the Year, but he had one goal, six assists going into the um, international break in which he went to the African Cup of Nations. And since then, he's actually had an assist. 
So, um, you know, I believe one or two assists at most. So, um, but don't you think that's part of what's hard about doing this vote is because we do get to see Roman every day. And so it's not, if you're basing it, if you're looking at the numbers and you're looking at stats and you're uh, somebody else voting for someone else, you know what I mean? It's just like when we're going to talk about rookie of the year, I mean, there's going to be people that go, Oh, how many goals did he score? But it's, we know what Roman means to this team. And unfortunately not everybody else might know. Kai Wagner for Philadelphia is going to be the same thing. People in Philadelphia and the Northeast who get to see him quite often are going to say that he's the, the, best outside back in the right. league and could be best 11 and mm-hmm. and same with brandon aronson for rookie of the year people say yeah. he's, he's like the sonny dodson which i'm pretty sure leads you right into your next this this yeah. is where we're, i was going next brandon aronson is mm-hmm. perhaps the only real challenger against the sonny dodson for the rookie of the year no, no doubt there have been several young players that have had good seasons and have been mentioned within this conversation once or twice but i i don't know anybody that has been as effective in multiple positions as Hassani Dotson has, but Brandon Aronson has played much more football, Kendra. Well, I was impressed with him when we went, um, you know, when we when we played against him, I was impressed with his ability, his calmness on the ball, you know, very much like we see from Hassani Dotson. I do think, you know, and then Aronson getting pulled into the full national team, that's a little bit of an, an accolade and a, and a feather in his cap as well. But, um, yes, he's played more minutes. He's had more starts. Aronson has. But again, me seeing Hassani Dotson up close and personal and once again, knowing his personality, knowing what he brings to the team, knowing that in any moment, at any time that whatever he's been called upon to do, the coaching staff has recognized that and that he studies the tape. He makes his own film. He wants to learn. He wants to listen. Let's go back to the very first game of the season, Vancouver Whitecaps. They brought Hassani Dotson on the pitch in a holding midfield role to kind of see the game out. It was only a couple minutes, but this is your first game on the road in MLS, Minnesota, Cannot win on the road in 2017 and 2018. And you're bringing Hassani Dotson on in that moment. And I think that was the very first time where we could say, wow, this kid, this kid has something here. And the coaching staff likes him and, and he does things the right way. So um, I think Aronson is deserving of the, the first, the number one vote for that. And I've, you know, I, I can understand that. Um, but to me, it's almost like a one and one A between Hassani Dotson and Aronson for me, because again, I see up close and personal what Hassani Dotson means for this club. And I don't know if either one, I don't know if Aronson just blows anybody away. Um, like maybe some of the other categories, but um, I, I, I love what Hassani Dotson does on the field and his demeanor and how he's really excelled at every position and so calm and uh, doesn't play like a rookie. Chase Gasper, too. I mean, he's been fantastic. So we've been really lucky and fortunate at Minnesota United this year with some pretty solid rookies. Finally, Jay, would Hassani Dotson have the right to be frustrated should Brandon Aronson win the Rookie of the Year? Um, I think so. Um, I voted Hassani one. I actually voted Shin Yashiki from Colorado second. And I, I think because he's got... Um, He's played 31 games this season, so he played almost every game. 18 uh, games started. He scored seven goals. If you're playing 31 games as a rookie and you score seven goals. That's a good point. I mean, I think that scoring goals are the hardest thing to do in professional soccer. Now, granted, I think in two of those games, there were braces. So I don't think he did it um, spread out over a bigger period of time. Uh, Brandon Aronson played 28 games at 18 years old with 25 games started, so seven more starts. He added three goals, two assists, so there's a well-roundedness, too. I'll listen to both arguments. I saw Shin Yashiki, saw him lead the line, go out wide. You know, I I picked him. It could have been Aronson on a different day, but for me, I, I think Asani Dotson is the most complete player of the three right now, and I think showed it in a variety of different ways. Um, and I also think the fact he's drafted 31st overall, 
really came out of nowhere. Um, Aronson, as a homegrown player, they knew who he was. They were able to cultivate. He's been within the system. Sonny Dotson coming in and 24 games played, 15 games, started four goals. Um, spectacular fashion at that, getting called up to the 23s. Um, I think he was, for me, just what I saw more often. I saw, which can be good or bad, because as we get to see these guys more often, we can also be more critical of them, and we can. there's more opportunities to see flaws. If you see Aronson for a game or two, you may say, he was really good, and my mind's made up off of that. And maybe that's why Shinyashiki got the vote. But I think Asani Dotson for me has, has been the best overall soccer player and most influential. But again, you can make an argument for either one. It'll be interesting to see how the rest of the country votes. Yeah, certainly will do. And uh, a fabulous, for you, Cal? an intriguing podcast comes to an end. Um, <laughs> Last one before I, we go. I, I would say Hassani Dotson because, as I said earlier on, I don't know a player that has been um, as effective and, and that has contributed as much as he has in various different positions when his team were in need. Um, I, I know Shinya Shiki has played out wide and played as a, as a lone centre forwards, um, but I think it's it's a lot more difficult to do it as a, as a defensive-minded player as well, in my opinion. Um, when you're playing as a centre forward a lot of the times, yes, I know you have to make the required runs, you you have to, um, to drop when needed and, and watch your positioning. Uh, and various other things, but a lot of the times the players are giving the ball to you. Um, and I think from a defensive point of view, I think um, Sonny Dotson, to be asked to play at left back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a right-footed midfielder. And to do it as effectively as he has mm-hmm. done. Um, I, I don't think any other rookie in the league would have been mm-hmm. asked to do that. Well, and he's going up against usually one of the best, if not the best players on the opposition's team, especially with the, some of the overlapping runs and the fullbacks getting forward. So when he was playing outside back on either side, when he you know, was in there for Roma Metinier, when he was away on international duty, Chase Gasper, you know, like, it, I, and even in the holding mid next to Ozzy Alonso or next to Jan, like he's, you know, usually he's dealing with some of the most prominent, if not the prominent players of the opposing number 10 mm. on the opposition. I just think, you know, there wouldn't be anything that you could say he didn't do well. Of course, you have a bad game. You have a bad pass. You have whatever. You're out of position at, on occasion. But I just think that he just did everything as expected. And it was crazy that he was a rookie in my mind. You'd forget. Yeah. And just to finish my, my point there to answer your, your question, Jeremy, I think um, the reason I would say Hassani as well is, is because I think there's much more expected of you as a defending player, as a defensive player. Yes. I think you get a lot more questions asked of you. Yes. And to play out of position, not once, but twice, playing in two fullback roles, and then at times been asked to be the, the lone six alongside is someone like a Jan Gregus. I just don't think there's been anybody that's been as effective as a Sonny Dotson. So there you go. That's my uh, my vote. So make of that what you will. MVP, real quick, before we go, both of oh. you guys. Vela. Vela. Yeah. Okay. I mean, clean sweep, right? It has to be, right? All right. That was, I think, the only one we may have missed. Yeah. (laughs) Has to be, doesn't it? Right. Uh, Again, um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Make sure you keep your eyes and ears peeled to mnufc.com. Plenty of playoff content coming your way. My thanks to Kindred E. St. Auburn, Jeremy Watson, our producer, Morgan Lubin, uh, and to you once again for joining us. Thanks, as always. You've been listening to a Minnesota United production.